This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. With over 500,000 products to choose from, ChristianBook.com brings everything Christian right to your fingertips, always at great values. Find it now at ChristianBook.com. It's Wednesday, December 12th, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Kevin Bowder joins us to discuss the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host, our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Ellie. Hey, Mark. Almost Merry Christmas. Yeah. Happy Advent in the meantime. Are you allowed to say Happy Advent? Everything we publish on Advent is very, like, mournful. <laughs> exactly. Sad. Exactly. It's like, a, it's you know, for us liturgical snobs, it's... It's kind of like a season of Lent in a lot of ways. It's preparing for the coming of our Lord. Because one time a year is not enough for Lent. Exactly. Not an, there's not enough time <laughs> in the year for mourning when sins, Morgan. I don't know if you've learned this yet. Uh-huh. We tend to sin more than once a year. Oh. All right. Well, I'll have to be discipled. Okay. You. All right. Tell us about our guest. Our guest is Kevin Bowder. He's a research professor at Central Baptist Seminary in Cincinnati. And he's the author of One in Hope and Doctrine, a two-volume work on the history of Baptist fundamentalism. So he's the perfect guest for our topic today. How are you, Kevin? I'm fine, except I'm in Minneapolis, not in Cincinnati. Where did I get Cincinnati on that? Okay. Cincinnati got into my head. It's in my notes. It's It's an easy confusion to make. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Kevin, how is your Advent season treating you? You know what? I am enjoying this Advent season, even though it's a mournful season. Yeah, I I like have to write all this like social media copy for my job. And I'm always like, can I put celebrating Advent or do we just observe Advent? Celebrate it. Yeah. yeah. We Baptists tend to have a little different liturgy. We, we skip directly from Thanksgiving to Christmas. True Americans. Well, let's get into our discussion for today. So this week, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram published a four-part series on more than 400 allegations of sexual misconduct affiliated with the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The scope of their reporting spanned nearly 1,000 churches and organizations across 40 states and Canada. The report noted this, 168 church leaders were accused or convicted of committing sexual crimes against children. The investigation found... At least 45 of the alleged abusers continued in ministry after accusations came to the attention of church authorities or law enforcement. The Star-Telegram's reporting profiles many of the young women at the heart of these cases and ensuing cover-ups, and we encourage you to read the full piece in its entirety. However, for the purpose of today's show, we'd like to talk about the independent fundamental Baptist movement itself. What is it, who belongs to it, and how large it is. All right, Mark, before we ask Kevin all of our questions about this movement, I do want to hear from you if you have a gut check reaction to this particular story that came out, even if we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about it today. Well, uh, my immediate reaction was, of course, uh, deep sadness when any member of any bo- of the body of Christ in any place, this sort of thing happens. And it happens, it seems to happen liturgical, non-liturgical, independent, denominational, liberal, conservative. Uh, sin uh, reaches out its ugly tentacles and grabs us 
And I think my first reaction was, I just don't even want to read the secular press who are going to chalk up this problem to fundamentalism as such. And so we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit about the, the culture of this particular denomination and movement and may, how that may or may not have contributed to it, because sometimes church cultures do. But there's nothing, I don't think, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong about fundamentalism as such that causes one to have this sort of sin in their, in their midst. But so that was my main thing I was thinking about. I think what you're trying to say about that is what you said at the beginning, which is we see these types of scandals pop up almost across Christendom, yes. regardless of polity, regardless of denominational style, even regardless of the gender norms that they promote. Correct. Yeah. You can listen to previous podcasts. In which we've talked about that. Yeah. You know, when this story was getting teased last week on social media, there was some discussion among our colleagues about how the word fundamental and fundamentalist was getting used in the run-up to the story. And then after this piece was published, someone, maybe it was you, commented that this was actually a true fundamentalist movement. And I have to say that we do talk about fundamentalism a little bit here at Christianity Today, kind of to distinguish ourselves from them. But I don't actually have a very good read about all the time where fundamentalism stops and where evangelicalism begins. Yeah, that's why I thought it was really good of you to make this our topic for the week, because I do think there is some confusion both out in the church and outside of it. All right. Well, Kevin, again, we are we're really grateful that you're just going to clear everything up for us <laughs> as we ask sure. all of our guests to do all the time. So my first question for you is, what are we talking about when we talk about the independent fundamental Baptist movement? We'll start there. You've got multiple designations there, and I think maybe the first thing that's worth saying is that, that there is no one independent fundamental Baptist movement, and there always have been competing fundamentalist Baptist movements. In one of his books, Jack Hiles devotes a section to a discussion of the differences between Northern Baptist fundamentalism and Southern Baptist fundamentalism. That, that is to say, there is a Northern variety of Baptist fundamentalism, and there is a Southern variety of Baptist fundamentalism. The Northern variety tends to be more confessional, more doctrinal. Uh, its preaching tends to be more expositional, um, tends to be more focused on, on the centrality of worship for the church. The Southern variety tends to be more confrontational. Its preaching tends to be more exhortational. It, it tends to be more activity-oriented uh, rather than worship-oriented. If, if you're in one of those churches, the thing they're going to try to do is, is to get you busy with bus, bus visitation or something like that as quickly as possible. And, and those dynamics work out in terms of d very different ways of doing church, pretty different sorts of leadership. There is crossover between those, but even today, the, the distinction between them, I think, still stands in a fairly marked way. Are there any names or institutions that you want to call out as being part of this movement that may be familiar to evangelicals and those listening to the show? If you want to think in terms of Southern Baptist fundamentalism, um, uh, a typical mission agency for Southern Baptist fundamentalism would be BIMI. 
I think it's Baptist International Missions Incorporated, the Baptist Bible Fellowship, the World Baptist Fellowship, Arlington Baptist College, Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. Hiles Anderson College would be connected with, even though it's located in the north, it's a, it's a transplant of Southern Baptist fundamentalism. The whole Sword of the Lord movement is part of Southern Baptist fundamentalism. Uh, more typical of Northern Baptist fundamentalism would be the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches or the New Testament Association of Regular Baptist Churches, Baptist Mid-Missions, Faith Baptist Bible College in Iowa or Maranatha Baptist Bible College in Wisconsin, Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, Central Baptist Theological Seminary. These, these would be more typical of the northern varieties of Baptist fundamentalism. Okay, I want to break out each of the words that we're using to describe this. So what about these churches is Baptist? Actually, I would argue that some of them aren't really Baptist. Oh. <laughs> um, what, what makes a church a Baptist church is, that, or a person a Baptist person, that the person or the church affirms what are called the Baptist distinctives. And I'll, I'll give you a quick overview there. Uh, the, the Baptist distinctives include the authority, absolute authority of the New Testament in all matters of church faith and order, they include believer immersion with emphasis on both words. That's, that's probably the distinctive that everybody thinks of. Baptist distinctives include pure church membership, which includes things like the priesthood of the believer and the soul liberty of the believer. It includes uh, congregational polity. and uh, It includes the separation of church and state. It, it includes uh, church discipline. Those, those things are marks of a Baptist church. To a degree that a church doesn't believe or practice those things, it really shouldn't call itself Baptist. Okay. So we got Baptist. Independent. What does that word mean here? This, this is one of the nubs of the problem right here. Northern Baptists tend to shy away from the word independent in favor of the term autonomous, which means that each local church is self-governing. But in, in the northern varieties of Baptist fundamentalism, churches tend to band together in fellowships like the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches or the New Testament Association of Independent Baptist Churches. E even though the word independent is used in its name, there's a very strongly associational impetus there, so that churches recognize their interdependence. In the Southern varieties of Baptist fundamentalism, if, if I could put it this way, the varieties where they spent, spell independent with a capital I, uh, there, there really is no connection at all between the churches. The only connection occurs in the uh, communication between the pastors. So, so that each local church tries to be a, a sort of a law unto itself. In the North, churches themselves recognize their dependence upon one another, and for that reason, organize church fellowships in which the churches cooperate. That doesn't happen in the Southern varieties of Baptist fundamentalism. Okay, let's talk about the last word here, fundamental. What does that mean? The term fundamentalist has sort of been co-opted since Martin Marty's fundamentalism project, where, where he made it a uh, sociological designation for, for uh, kind of any extreme group. Historically, uh, but, but maybe I should say this, none of us are really happy with that label these days uh, <laughs> because of the connotations that, that it carries now. But historically, what fundamentalists 
what the name fundamentalist has meant is two things. First of all, it means firm belief in what are called fundamental doctrines, that is to say, the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And then secondly, an insistence that you should only extend Christian fellowship to people who actually profess to believe the gospel. And those fundamentals uh, narrow down to about five, as I recall? Well, that, that's really a caricature. Um, I, I, you, you've got statements of fundamentals as far back as the Apostles' Creed. Uh, the, 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 the chief symbols of the Church are really synopses or attempts to synopsize fundamental doctrines. Right. Uh, the, the Reformers all talked about fundamental doctrines, or they, they would sometimes call them capital heads or cardinal doctrines. It, it comes right down through the Princeton theologians. Fundamentalists didn't invent the idea of fundamental doctrines. The, the idea behind a fundamental is that it is essential to the gospel. If you deny a fundamental, then implicitly, at least, you are denying the gospel itself. Yes, that's a, that's a very good correction. But does this movement have its origin in the fundamentalist moderner, modernist controversy and the publication of the, this document called the Fundamentals back in the turn of the 19th to the 20th century? Yeah, what what happened in the late 19th century is that there there was a sort of a, a, a sea change in um, organized Christianity as the, the, the thought categories of the Enlightenment took over and scientific method became the rule of the day. Uh, there, there was an attempt to redefine Christianity in, in terms of demonstrable facts. A movement that was labeled at the time modernism or sometimes religious liberalism, fundamentalism began as a reaction against theological modernism or religious liberalism. One expression, actually the, the series of books that you're talking about, it was a series of 12 volumes called The Fundamentals, released by um, Milton and Lyman Stewart, who were the, the uh, owners of Union Oil. The, the Fundamentals, that series, actually antedated fundamentalism per se. Uh, fundamentalism as a movement begins in about 1920, uh, the fundamentals were published from probably 1909 to 1914, somewhere in that vicinity. So they're, they're an attempt to articulate the fundamentals. Uh, what the fundamentalist movement did is to say, okay, we, we have these fundamentals and we have these people who are denying them within our denominations and churches. What we need to do is to find a way to deal with these people who are here. There's a connection between those the fundamentals and the fundamentalist movement with, uh, with Biola University now, which was the Bible Institute of Los Angeles was its first name. Is that am I correct in that? Yes, that's that's correct. And in fact, one of the early deans at Biola, R. A. Torrey, was one of the principal editors of the Fundamentals. That's just a touch point for some of our listeners who are familiar with Biola. No. Yeah. So let's keep talking about some of this history here. I'm really curious about what gave fundamentalists a bad name. So maybe you can bring us to that point, Kevin. Oh, boy. How, how you know, how do people get a bad name? Um, sometimes they deserve it. I don't know if that's the case here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, honestly, sometimes we have. But here's, here's the thing. Fundamentalism has always been something of a protest movement. Um, it, it, it is a reactionary movement. It began in reaction against the, the fact that the, the mainline denominations were being taken over, being co-opted by liberal theology, which uh, I, I believe it's fair to say, and it, it, it doesn't take simply a fundamentalist to say this, 
uh, liberal theology really does deny fundamental doctrines. It really does at least implicitly deny the gospel. So the question becomes, if, if you've got these people who are claiming to be Christians, but they're denying the gospel and they're in our denomination, what does that do to our Christian fellowship? And, and what fundamentalists said was, we must only extend Christian fellowship to those people who profess to believe the true gospel. And, and what these liberals profess to believe isn't the true gospel. Therefore, one of two things must happen. Either we must remove them from our denominations, or if they cannot be removed, then we must remove ourselves from our denominations. They, they tried the, the purge-out approach first, and when that didn't work, as a rule, they tried the come-out approach second. Be, because you're dealing with people, those kinds of confrontations are going to turn ugly, and, and they turned ugly on both sides. It's usually, uh, as you've heard it said, it's usually the winners who write the histories, and because the liberals managed to maintain control of their denominations, I think they were in a position to say that it was the fundamentalists who were really the ugly ones. In fact, there, there were ugly events on both sides of the aisle, uh, but I think that's where the bad name begins. It also gets accented in the writings of H.L. Mencken, who was a national uh, columnist at the, at the time who loved to poke fun at the, at the fundamentalists. And uh, I'm sure the Scopes trial played a huge role in that as well in terms of the national consciousness. Oh, let's, let's talk about Mencken for a moment. The, the man is absolutely fascinating and one of the best writers you'll ever read. I love to read Mencken. Uh, he's he's one of those guys that even when he's wrong, you even when he's attacking you, he he's, he does, he's entertaining. Even when he's wrong, he makes you laugh. Yeah, he does. He does. And he it wasn't so much fundamentalism as a doctrinal phenomenon that disturbed him. It was fundamentalism as a rural phenomenon that disturbed him. He hated bumpkins, and he thought William Jennings Bryan was the biggest bumpkin in the world. And, and so he put all the poison of his pen uh, against Bryan. He, he, he hated Bryan on plenty of other grounds as well. It's very interesting, however, that, that one of the leading, I, I think it's a fair statement to say one of the leading fundamentalists of the day was J. Gresham Machen. And when Machen passed away, uh, Mencken's treatment of Machen was entirely different. He he lauded Machen, uh, spe speaking of Machen as as one of the few really educated religious men whom he had met. Um, so it, it wasn't the doctrinal position that was the problem for Mencken, or even necessarily the business of trying to clean out the denominations. He thought of fundamentalists as rubes. He thought of them as country bumpkins, and that's what he strongly disliked. Would you say that the the movement as it was splitting, um, it was splitting also along class lines and urban-rural divides? There was a tendency for, for the theological liberals or modernists to co-opt the educational institutions first. And as the result, there was the tendency for fundamentalists to try to build a base of support by appealing to the popular voice. And, and so there did come to be a class element to the clash as well. But the first generation of fundamentalists, for the most part, were very well-educated individuals. And it's not that they despised education. It's that they, they, they didn't like what had happened um, to the institutions in which they had invested their lives and money. Yeah, Machen would be a great example. He, he was a mind to contend with in his day, even if you disagreed with him. 
And, and when he left Princeton, he turned right around and founded Westminster. I want to figure out now where evangelicals fit into this discussion. I don't think I'm surprising anyone with this news. Billy Graham died this year. And when I read some of our coverage, we did a big issue on Billy Graham. There's parts in it that refer to the disagreements he held himself with the fundamentalists, if I'm not wrong. No, that's correct. He he broke with many fundamentalists. Yes. So, but, but how was he different than them? And in what ways was he different than them? And how is that important to this whole larger movement of American Christianity? Well, at first he was one of them. To un- understand the Billy Graham phenomenon, what you need to understand is that, that at least on the fundamentalist side, it wasn't just a matter of disagreement. There was also a profound sense of betrayal. You actually have to go back a few decades to the original fundamentalist modernist controversy within the denominations. The fundamentalists were trying to clear the liberals out of the denominations, and they thought it would be an easy job because the overwhelming majority of the people in the mainline denominations held the fundamentals of the faith to be true. Uh, But what they discovered is that when push came to shove, there weren't just two groups, liberals and fundamentalists. There were three groups. There, There were the liberals who had, at least from a fundamentalist perspective, denied the faith. There were the fundamentalists who were trying to preserve the faith. But then there was this middle group of people who believed the fundamentals, but they didn't want the fight. And so when the fight came, they tended to side with the liberals rather than siding with the fundamentalists. Now, if you fast forward a couple of decades, Billy Graham is heir to the fundamentalist side of that debate. But what he tried to do, especially especially from 1956 onward, what, what he tried to do was, was to bring that, mo- that, 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 that policy of moderation toward liberalism into the evangelical movement as a whole. He tried to make it the dominant theme of evangelicalism. And the, the, the critical turning point was his New York City crusade, which was held in 1957, I think. But the buildup to it in 56 was, was really the, the falling out between Billy Graham Uh, and what became known as separatist fundamentalism. He refused to go to New York City unless the the, um, New York branch of the National Council of Churches would support him. And the fundamentalists refused to cooperate. And, And that was a liberal organization. The fundamentalists refused to cooperate as long as there were liberals involved. And, and so from that point onward, you have Graham going in one direction, liberals going in a different direction. I just want to point out, from what I recall, Billy Graham also wanted to meet with Niebuhr. Niebuhr did, definitely didn't want to meet with Billy Graham. So I'm sure the fact that Billy Graham did want to meet with Niebuhr was somewhat controversial. And also, I did want to point out, too, 1956, the year that Christianity Today was founded. So also happening in the middle of that. Well, and not only that, but Christianity Today was financed by Billy Graham's father-in-law, Nelson Bell. Uh, so so the, what, what you have beginning in the, 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 the late 40s, you have a, a coterie of young intellectuals who gather around the brand new Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, they're, they're headed up by Harold John Aachen Gay, but you've got Edward John Carnell, you've got Carl F. H. Henry, you've, you, uh, Harold Denzel, you, you have this group of very vigorous young men who come together in, in the wake of World War II. Uh, and, and they establish a movement that they call the new evangelicalism. And what they want to do, they're looking at a world that's been devastated by the war. 
Um, and from their point of view, civilization is on the verge of collapse, and they really see themselves as potentially the saviors of civilization. But to do that, they have to have the cooperation of the liberals. They believe their message is the message that can change the world. And it, it, they preached the gospel. They believed the gospel. They believed it could change the world, but they felt they needed the cooperation of the liberals, and they needed cultural influence. Uh, and so they, they abandoned the separatism that had characterized fundamentalism. What Billy Graham does when he comes along is to take that neo-evangelical movement, and he turns it into a more popular movement. Um, there, there had been disagreements between fundamentalists and neo-evangelicals from the late 1940s onward, but Billy Graham really forced the issue with the, with the 1957 New York City crusade. The issue wasn't so much, can you talk to Niebuhr? I, and depending on which Niebuhr you're talking about, uh, they, they weren't really liberal. They were more kind of neo-orthodox. The question wasn't, can we sit down and talk? The question is, can we work together in the gospel? Can we recognize one another as Christians? Billy Graham wanted to say, yes, I'm willing to do that. The fundamentalists were not willing to take that step. Uh, and, and they insisted that if, if you want our help and support, then, then you can't involve the liberals in the work. And faced with that choice, uh, Graham went with the liberals rather than with the fundamentalists. The way that divides out been part and parcel of Christianity Today's history since. I don't know if it's still true today, but I certainly, when I started working here, a, a very common narrative of a Christianity Today reader was, I used to be a fundamentalist, but then I discovered Christianity Today, <laughs> and now I'm an evangelical. So Christianity Today was, was made up of former fundamentalists, in, in large part, who were reacting against not necessarily the theology of fundamentalism, but the, the tone and the personality of fundamentalists as they had, had experienced it. Yeah, there, there were no major theological differences except over the question of separatism in those days. Um, but, but if you go back and you look at the early issues of Christianity Today, when Carl F. H. Henry is the editor, uh, in the first place, it's not a news magazine. It's a journal of opinion. And in the second place, a lot of the column inches get up, get taken up with with the whole thing of of defending a more open approach as opposed to a more separatistic approach. And and I should say it was it was anything but apparent at that time which which side was going to prevail, whether it was going to be the neo evangelicals who made their case or whether it was going to be the fundamentalists who made their case. And, and it's not until you get into the late 60s or early 70s that uh, neo-evangelicalism begins to pull ahead in any sort of a significant way. Yeah, I wrote an uh, introductory biography to Carl Barth, who was published a year and a half ago now. And one of the, one of the anecdotes I tell in it is, and this is illus illus illustrative of the neo-evangelical approach to liberals themselves, they certainly didn't agree with liberals. And when uh, Carl Henry had a blister, either made a, either wrote a whole editorial or had a blistering comment about Reinhold Niebuhr or, or neo-orthodoxy, I guess it was, we have a personal letter from uh, Billy Graham to Carl Henry saying, you know, essentially the point of the letter is we'll win a lot more uh, converts to our cause with using, you know, honey instead of a stick. And his point was, yes, we do need to help our liberal brethren come to more to a more orthodox faith, but the way we do it is uh, through gentle persuasion and winsome persuasion. 
And and there was a reason uh, f- for that. If if you look at the old line liberals, the old line modernists, and you compare the neo orthodox theologians, it looks as if the neo orthodox theologians have made several important concessions in the direction of orthodoxy. And I think the original neo-evangelicals looked at the movement from from liberalism to neo-orthodoxy, and they thought, if we can encourage these people, if we can build the bridges, they will cross right over into orthodoxy. Well, they, they did the encouraging, and they built the bridges. Unfortunately, I think almost all of the crossing over has been in the other direction. Right. It is interesting to note that uh, Jeffrey Bromley, who was a senior editor with Christianity Today at the time, gave his life, a good part of his life, to translating Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, uh, which is a which is a, a sign of the interest of the neo-evangelical, who Bromley definitely would be, in the in the theology of neo-orthodoxy and his commitment to learn it and to understand it. Yes. And there there were some crossovers from, from a more liberal position to a more evangelical position. You have an Edel Linneman or a Thomas Oden here or there, but th- those those are very exceptional. If, if you start to track the number of people who have gone the other direction, uh, what, what you now see in the evangelical world is people stationed all the way along that bridge, clear over into territory that used to be occupied by frank liberalism, only they're still calling themselves evangelical. Hey, this is Morgan from Quick to Listen. This episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored in part by Start Church, a company for pastors and ministry leaders that helps get started the right way. And today I'm speaking with Nathan Camp. He's the VP of Strategy at Start Church. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. So Nathan, agree or disagree? When most people think about starting churches, most people don't realize all the paperwork involved. 1,000% agree. (laughs) I've spoken with thousands of church planners. People say, Nathan, I learned more about the establishment of the legal side of church in my 20-minute phone call with you than in four years of seminary. The most ridiculous things are really small errors in the very beginning. There was a, a, a church in the Northeast. They got the wrong employer identification number. The problem with them is they got a number that alerted the IRS that they're a ministry instead of a church. And so there was a certain form that they were then legally bound to fill out every year that churches are exempt from. But because they got the wrong number, they... Oh my gosh. Yeah. And here's what happened. The IRS had revoked them for two years and the church didn't even know it. They had taken millions of dollars in tithes and offerings through a ministry that was not tax exempt during that time. And uh, we fixed it for them. We love to be able to help them correct those and get them moving forward. You can learn more about Start Church at startchurch.com. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? Churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. 
Join churchlawandtax.com today. I want to go back to some of the stuff that we've been talking about with regards to tone, because to me, that's not the thing that feels most readily apparent when I think about the different movements today. I guess when I when I think of the word fundamentalist, I'm more likely to think about stances on particular issues, anything from sex and sexuality to race. I, I know many of us, when we hear like Bob Jones, for instance, think about their ban on interracial dating for a long time, or even stuff like the authority of scripture, just to some extent. So is there a point at which tone and engagement with the quote-unquote other side does not stay the big defining issue, and instead it kind of plays out along culture war issues? I don't think, especially today, I don't think you're going to see any significant difference in terms of the main cultural issues between fundamentalists and, let's say, center-to-right evangelicals. I, I just don't think it's there. You you reference, um, you know, the Bob Jones episode, Um they began their policies at a time when those kinds of policies were widespread in the culture. Unfortunately, they carried them over into a time when most others had, had abandoned those kinds of perspectives and policies. But if, if you were to step onto the campus at Bob Jones University today, I don't think you'd find anybody who isn't embarrassed and ashamed of those policies. So you would say that it's still a a difference between evangelicalism and fundamental overtone then in cultural engagement rather than... I think it has to do with the, the notion of separation. At what point do you separate from others? It, it, yes, and, and not, not separate socially and culturally, but separate ecclesiastically over, over the doctrines of the faith. That's the key issue. To take an example, you, know, you, you look at rather conservative evangelicals like um, Al Mohler, or Mark Dever. Um, they are often called fundamentalists. I think that's unfair. They don't want to be called fundamentalists. The, the, the key difference between them and a separatist fundamentalist of today is going to be over this question. What do we do with, and, and this, this is anachronistic, but the question, what do we do with the Billy Grahams of the world? What, what do we do with the people who believe the gospel and preach the gospel, but want to do it hand in hand with those who deny the gospel. You, you walk on the campus at Southern Seminary today, and they're, they're going to have a Billy Graham Center on their campus. They celebrate the legacy of Billy Graham. Um, to, to Probably to a person, f fundamentalist leaders are going to say, no, we're not going to celebrate, celebrate Billy Graham. Billy Graham was terribly wrong in holding hands uh, with gospel deniers. And, and so ev even though we're not going to deny uh, Brother Graham's salvation or anything like that, we rejoice that he's in heaven today. Uh, at, at the same time, we're not going to hold him up methodologically as, as an example of what people should do. We're not going to regard him as a hero, whereas I think he would be in most evangelical circles. And, and the issue, again, isn't just Billy Graham. The, the issue is the question, what do we do with people who deny the gospel? Yeah, so this is getting to the issue of second separation, I think it's called, where you would deny fellowship to someone who might believe everything you believe, but then is entertaining fellowship with people who, are, who don't believe in the gospel. 
the, the expression that you're after is secondary separation. Okay, so, so look at it this way. F fellowship and separation are correlative terms, and they're inversely proportional to, to the extent that I am fellowshipping with an individual, I am not separated from that individual. It's speaking ecclesiastically now, to the extent that I am separated from that individual, I am not fellowshipping with that individual. We, we all, at least virtually all of us recognize, all Christians recognize, that at some level, there, there is going to be some degree, some amount of separation that occurs between us, even though we recognize one another as genuine, legitimate believers in the gospel and followers of Jesus Christ. One of my best friends in the world is the dean of a Presbyterian seminary. I love him. He loves me. He prays for my ministry. I pray for his ministry. I wish him nothing but well. He wishes me nothing but well. But both of us realize, and we joke about this sometimes, both of us realize that, that as, as much as we care for each other, we would never be able to plant a church together. In fact, we wouldn't even be able to be members of the same church because he's not going to be a member of a church that will not allow parents to baptize, to, to have their infant children baptized. I'm not going to be a member of a church that's going to baptize or do what it calls baptizing any kind of an infant. So there, there is a separation between us, even though we mutually recognize each other as brothers in Christ. This, this is the rationale behind historic denominationalism. Sometimes it's better to bless each other from a distance than to fight each other up close. And, and we do this over all kinds of things. And, and they're, they're, they're tied to different levels of fellowship. We, we, we have one set of expectations for people we're going to be church members with. We have a different set of expectations for people maybe that we're going to appear on a platform with. Uh, we, we have a different set of expectations for uh, wh what Rollin McCune has called coffee cup fellowship, just personal individual fellowship in the gospel. Uh, I, can, I can sit down and enjoy fellowship in the gospel with somebody that I, I wouldn't share a platform with. I can share a platform with somebody that I might not be able to be a church member with. Well, so the, the question becomes then, how serious is this question of not extending Christian fellowship to somebody who denies the gospel. Fundamentalists have looked at 2 John, and they have seen that in 2 John, if, if you join hands with somebody who denies the gospel, 2 John 7 through 9, then you get a share, literally you get a fellowship in the evil that that person does. And so fundamentalists have said that extending Christian fellowship to gospel deniers, when you do it deliberately, and especially if you're recognizing them as Christian leaders, this, this is a bigger error rather than a smaller error, which means that somebody who takes the Billy Graham approach to things or the Harold John Ockengay approach to things is committing a more serious practical error rather than a less serious practical error. And so at minimum, we would say, yeah, yes, we could sit down and have personal fellowship with these individuals. That's, that's not the issue. 
But we're not going to take these individuals and, and hold them up as examples of what Christian leadership ought to look like. We're not going to put them in leadership in our institutions, nor are we going to be identified with them in their endeavors. That's what is sometimes called secondary separation. And I think that's important for us to recognize. You know, I can speak personally. I admire people that have strong convictions like this and are willing to follow through with them, even though it's personally costly in one way or another. So uh, I think that's the most charitable light to understand that that whole uh, dimension of fundamentalism. And very often contrary to what we would wish. The, the, the relationship between Bob Jones Sr. and Billy Graham was a very close relationship. There, there, there were other fundamentalist leaders who were very, John R. Rice was very closely associated with Billy Graham. And when that break came, it, it, it was a personal tragedy for these men. They, they wept over it. I've spoken with these men years on after the break. And, and they, they weren't mad at Billy. They, 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 they didn't hate Billy. They still loved Billy. In fact, some of them maintained a personal relationship with Billy for years after that. And, and yet they, they couldn't publicly endorse his ministry and couldn't publicly use him. It wasn't a personal thing at all. Can you give us a sense of where this movement is today? Well, you know, I've used the, the, the expressions Northern Baptist fundamentalism and Southern Baptist fundamentalism. Obviously, you have one version that tends to be more dominant in the North and one version that tends to be more dominant in the South. Although, again, there's crossing over. What I would say is at, at this moment, f- fundamentalism in general has been decimated, and I, I use that term advisedly, but been decimated by three phenomena. One is the phenomena of big man leadership, which, which plays into the kind of scandals and controversies uh, that, that show up in the newspaper. The guys who treat their church members that way tended to treat each other that way too. And so particularly on the part of Southern Baptist fundamentalism, there there has been a tendency to just implode over leadership issues. The second thing has been landmark theology. Landmark theology basically denies the existence of a universal church, believes that local churches are the only true churches, and the only true local churches are Baptist churches which means that they don't want any kind of fellowship or very little kind of fellowship outside their immediate Baptist circles. The third element, and probably the biggest of the three, uh, has been the King James Only movement, which isn't only a fundamentalist phenomenon, but it's probably had a bigger impact on fundamentalism um, than than, uh, it has anywhere else. Those three factors have really exploded fundamentalism. And as, as, as the result of that, fundamentalism is, is presently uh, in, in quite marked decline. There have been a number of schools and other institutions that have closed. The, the numbers are probably smaller than they have been in decades. So how long do you imagine this movement existing? As I've said from the beginning, I don't think it ever has existed as a single movement. Uh, certainly, it doesn't exist as a single movement right now. The the differences between Southern and Northern fundamentalism have, have never been greater. The differences over things like King James Onlyism or big man leadership have, have never been more pronounced. It's not a single movement. I 
don't see a way that it could come together as a single movement. The, the largest, well, I, I'll back away from saying it's the largest. It may be the largest single component of fundamentalism that's left is probably dominated by the King James only movement. And what's happened is that as you, you get your vocal minority on the extreme right uh, becoming more and more vociferous, Many of those who are less sympathetic to that mindset just say, I've had enough of this, I'm, I'm going somewhere else. They find more in common, let's say, with a John MacArthur than they do with uh, fundamentalism or with a Mark Dever than they do with fundamentalism. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing all this history and thought with us and anyone who has opinions. Again, I'm would imagine this would be an episode where people might have some strong opinions about this. They can leave us those opinions on Twitter. We're at CT Podcasts, or you can send us an email. We're at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. We have a December issue that is currently out, and we have a number of pieces about Advent and Christmas that are in that issue. I know Mark has one of the ones that is one of his favorites. Yeah, we have an Advent piece called A Carol for the Despairing, penned during the Civil War, Longfellow's I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day as a Carol for Our Age. It is a very poignant and thoughtful piece about the history of this carol, about Longfellow, and about the season of Advent. So I don't want to say too much more than that and just encourage you to take a look at that. It's a a very fine piece in our December issue. Yeah, the song has some very sobering lyrics, so I'm glad we're giving it some 2018 treatment. All right, if you want to read this particular piece, you can get it by becoming a subscriber. Again, orderct.com slash quicktolisten. Orderct.com slash quicktolition. You can get the December issue in your own hands, or you can also have access to it all the time online. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and we're asking everyone to share something that is bringing them joy today. You can go first, Mark. Well, the joy continues in my home. <laughs> you have another project you're working I'm, on? The projects the never end. You sound fun to live with. Yeah, exactly. So... As I've said before, just the ability to break away from the uh, the countless debates uh, in our uh, on on the social media in our movement, and to do something concrete like paint the trim in the hallway, <laughs> and there's a feeling of accomplishment. In fact, my wife is doing a really good job of encouraging me. Aww. After I painted the trim in one set of steps, she just went on and on how marvelous it looked, which I'm only a sucker for, which makes me willing to do more. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, Barb. Thank you, Barb. All right. Well, where can people find you when you're off doing your house projects? I published something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. You can find it at Christianity Today slash the Galley Report, and I link to articles and comment on them. All right, Kevin. You know, the, 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 the thing that I find most joyful right now is having identity in Jesus Christ. I don't need to find my identity in any human movement, connection, association, organization. I'm connected to Jesus Christ. That's what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, that is a refreshing reality to be reminded of in a world that wants to divide us so, so much by so many other things, huh? Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Is there any place that people who would be interested in learning more about you or following up with you can visit after this podcast is over? 
you know, Central Seminary, where, where I teach, publishes um, a weekly email, I suppose you'd call it a newsletter. It's, it's more a miniature journal of opinion. It's, it's a, um, an opinion piece that comes out every Friday. It's called In the Nick of Time. And if you go to the Central Seminary website, centralseminary.edu, just follow the links to In the Nick of Time. You can sign up for it there. I'll write for that as much as anyone on our faculty does. Cool. All right. My precious moment is that I volunteered pretty regularly at this soup kitchen for about three years from 2015 to 2018 this summer. And then I haven't really been back there all fall because I've been busy with some other commitments. But I went again last night. And unfortunately, the way that the soup kitchen is designed, there's actually not a great opportunity to connect with the people who come and get food, which I've been to some of these food programs that you can sit with the guests and hang out with them. And those have been really great relationships I've made. But I actually really liked this place because I did get closer with the staff and the volunteers that were there. And I just had a great conversation last night with one of the female volunteers who was there and she was just telling me about the struggles of her life. One of her kids is currently experiencing homelessness right now and we just had some good rich conversation about um, families and the holidays and faith too which is also pretty cool. So I'm glad that I had the opportunity to go back and see people there that I care about. People can find me on Twitter. I am there. M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, where you'll find great Christmas gifts for everyone on your list. From books to Bibles and music to videos, toys, and more, Christian Book has everything Christmas for less. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, basically everywhere that you want to get a podcast, you will find us there. This podcast is produced by myself, Cray Allred, and Richard Clark. Our theme music is by Sweeps. Please leave a review for us. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate that you do this. Also, please subscribe to Christianity Day magazine. I think we do awesome work and we also make this podcast possible. So thank you everyone who already does that. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.